Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Let's start. Try to do the energy and the capital markets part of this in 10 minutes. So I've, I got my watch out. I'm watching my watch. Uh, oil is a little weak. Gasoline consumption is off 10% on a trailing four-week basis. The only explanation that makes sense is that people have reacted to high prices and are figuring out ways to, you know, do the trip to get milk and pizza with one trip rather than two trips or carpool or whatnot. The people in the refining business are a little alarmed by this because when your demand's off 10%, these refineries, you know, operate at close to 100% all the time. So normally in the summer, you make gasoline and in the winter, you make heating oil and diesel, but they're shifting their, their crude plates and how they're running the refineries make more heating oil, diesel, which is typically, and jet fuel, which is what's called distillate. Now, what has happened is the crack spread, in other words, the the amount that a barrel of gasoline sells for as compared to a barrel of oil has shrunken considerably. It's probably down now under $20. So the pump price is down. The price of crude is down. The pump price is down. So the Biden administration, looking forward to the midterms, has uh, all kinds of advantages now because the price of gasoline is down. Uh, what the refiners are doing is making more distillate, which is what a refiner calls eating all diesel and jet fuel. And the crack spread for distillate got as high as 60 or $70, and it's probably still $30, which is very high. Why is the crack spread for distillate so high? because the resumption of travel, especially international travel, which uses a lot more jet fuel, it's high because European businesses faced with electricity and natural gas at 50 or $60 per FCF, the conversion is six to one, $50 times six is $300 oil. You'd rather use heating oil or diesel or anything. The other thing is that I, I can assure you Every tank in Europe that can hold heating oil or diesel will be filled by the time the winter starts. The reason for that is with reduced gas flows from Russia, the utilities will cut off their business customers, what they call their interruptible customers, in order to keep the residential grid for gas, for heating, and and residential electric grid working. So... If you're making cars or car parts or whatnot, and you have some tanks, you're going to have chock-a-block full at the beginning of winter. So if you're told by utility, have to do without power, do without natural gas for some number of days because it's very cold or, and they have to keep the residential grid up, you'll use the heating oil. So distillate will stay high. The refiners will make more distillate and less gasoline. But this is a little alarming. Because what it shows is that it, the response in oil products, granted it's not distillate because of all the dislocation in Europe, but it is gasoline, which is 
on a worldwide basis, half of all, more than half of all the oil is made into gasoline. So what this is showing is that there is a price response. If the price of gasoline is higher, people use less of it. Another issue that affects the price of oil is, or the expectations of future price for oil, is how many electric vehicles will there be? I said on prior Wednesday calls, we have 250 million cars in this country. It's kind of remarkable since there are only 320 million of us. There are 120 million households. So that's two cars per household. Got to believe that the upper half, the ones who buy iPhones and have Amazon Prime accounts and whatnot, with two cars, averaging two cars, or maybe they have, say, three cars, they will have at least one electric car. So if you project ahead, I don't know how far ahead, seven years, 10 years, 12 years, some number of years, you would expect that we wouldn't have more than 250 cars. My goodness, uh, especially with Uber and Lyft and whatnot, you would think the car population might start coming down a little. But how could it be that 50 million of those 250 million cars won't be electric cars? That means overall gasoline demand 10 years from now may be significantly less than it is now. You'd say, well, that's just us. What about the rest of the world? Well, Europe will probably be more like that than us, uh, more inclined to have, you know, have more electric vehicles. China and India have, you know, kind of directed by the state, China and China, that same way in India, all kinds of promotion of, of electric vehicles. So if you think, well, OPEC has very little spare capacity, the large oil companies from Exxon on down are not reinvesting, you know, there's a prospect here for $100 oil, $150 oil, or whatnot. Okay, understand all that. Two points, though. Uh, this looks very strong. Gasoline isn't because there's some price response. Second of all, what about all these electric vehicles, which is, from a macro point of view, why Mike and I and, and his partner Jason have spent the time on Tesla. You know, remember, we started looking at battery. We thought that we're... Since half of the cost of an electric car is batteries, we said, well, who makes batteries? Who's good at making batteries? Turns out the best battery manufacturers are CATL and maybe BYD are both Chinese companies. So, you know, do you want to stack risk? Do you want to invest in a company that's a good company, but it's incorporated and headquartered and has a high portion of its operations in China? Not so sure I want to do that. So... Then we went, well, where else can we go? Who has a lot of experience with batteries? I think it, you can't make a case that anyone has more experience than Tesla has. That's why we said, okay, Tesla with four factories, you know, we think can grow and it has free cash flow and not, not much debt, hardly any debt. Bounty is actually better than Ford GM. I went to the trouble of checking Ford GM. We're kind of interested in Tesla, not at $800 there, but maybe at 500. And of course, it's about the split. So we'll have to adjust those prices for the splits. In terms of natural gas in this country, natural gas is behaving pretty well. I just redid an analysis on natural gas pricing. Natural gas got as low on average for the year as 220 in 2020 with COVID. And it recovered to about 380 average in 21. Um, and it's going to average like $6 this year and the future 
Fred said to college next year, that the analysis I've done sent around to our companies that have natural gas positions is that what will the average be after this year and next year? And, and the answer is 450, you know, which is up considerably. If you average, if you average 2019, 2020, and 21, it comes to about 350. So, I mean, that's a full dollar up. That makes a big difference to the cash flow of the company. The two that we watch most carefully because we have them in existing partnerships is Antero Resources and Southwestern. We've been sellers of Southwestern. We've been Antero for a long time, so we've been selling that too just because we've owned it for a long time. But the other natural gas companies are typically Marcellus companies, EQT, Antero. Both of those are Marcellus companies only. And then Chesapeake is kind of part Hainesville and part Marcellus. And then Southwestern, which we took in consideration for selling one of our companies, is, again, a part Marcellus, part Hainesville. Why is it important to be Marcellus and Hainesville? Those are the only two basins that appear to be economic. The other source of natural gas, of course, is associated gas from production in the Permian and, and other areas, offshore, Oklahoma, other South Texas, you know, are higher cost. But now natural gas is a bit of an issue because demand for natural gas is about 15% LNG export. And it takes a long time to build more LNG capacity. So that will help with as time goes on. But the other demand sources for natural gas, residential is about flat, industrial is about flat, and power isn't growing. Why isn't power growing? Natural gas prices are high because power is short. But the reason it's growing is as you put more wind and solar capacity in, which get priced at variable cost, which is nothing for wind and solar, because you have to, have the way our power markets work now, you sell the gas every day, kind of your day ahead market or your real time market. So we're worried that natural gas, demand for natural gas to make power in the United States will flatten out. So the only source of increase is LNG, and it takes like two and a half years to build an LNG train. So I'm pretty confident the 450, you know, but natural gas investors are getting used to six dollars, which they don't get all of it because most of the companies still have hedges on. But you know, if you own a natural gas stock, you'll be fine. If we get into the winter and natural gas price goes, or the current price, like eight dollars, goes to five and a half or six. That'll cause natural gas stocks to decline. If you have a favorite natural gas stock, it might be an opportunity. I think 450 is a reasonable number longer term. Now I'm over the 10 minutes, but just a commentary on the energy bill that was passed that Joe Manchin and Chuck Schumer worked out along with Kristen Cinema. It doesn't, I don't think it makes too much difference to the energy business. I don't think it makes too much difference to anything. It probably puts the Democrats in a little better position to to hang on to the house for the midterm, but I don't think in terms of investing, it makes a whole bunch difference. There's all this impact on, on what the Fed funds rate is, whether it's going to go up the, in September by 75 basis points rather than 50 and they try to combat inflation. I, I happened to read over the weekend just a straight piece of a newspaper article comparing our position here with what Boker did. If Boker, if Powell were like Boker, 
he would take the Fed balance sheet, not just back to four trillion, probably take it back to two and a half trillion. Of course, that produced 18 or 19 percent prime rate, but I don't think it's possible for a Federal Reserve chairman here in 22 to do something like that. Remember, if they put it in runoff, it'd be 90 billion a month. So that'd come down a rate of around a trillion a year. They chickened out. They're only taking it down 30 billion a month. Sooner or later, I think if they're doing their job and they, and, you know, dual mandate, inflation and having low unemployment rates, you know, they're, they're going to have to be active taking the balance sheet down. And that is worrisome. So all the focus on what the Fed funds rate is going to go up next, you know, in September, I think is looking at the wrong thing. The, the right thing to look at is, are they going to go into full rundown? And, you know, chances are they will at some point, or at least I hope they will. And, uh, with that, we have all kinds of news on uh, the chip stocks, which we spent lots of time looking at. We have Taiwan Semiconductor, which looks like it has a little more macro risk because the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, insisted on stopping into Taiwan. We have NVIDIA saying that their sales are going to be a billion dollars less than they predicted 45 days ago. We have uh, Micron with memory chips saying the same thing, you have Intel saying the same thing. And so as Mike predicted, you know, we've gone from a, we're going from a chip shortage to a chip surplus. And with that, have Mike fill in more of the details. If you're an NVIDIA stockholder or an ADF stockholder, or even if you're, you're, you believe that somehow Intel will come back, if you own shares of any of these things, I, I wouldn't sell them. I think, uh, I think if you wait, you might be able to buy you know, the chips are plus, you know, progresses, you might be able to buy the chips for less, uh, or you might be able to buy the stocks for less. But with that, I, I've, uh, I've covered the high points. So I'll turn over the rest to Mike and I will, we'll have Mike go for at least 10 minutes. I'll interject with questions if I see anything noteworthy, but otherwise over to you, Mike. Okay. Well, let's go through that list of stocks that you just mentioned. So let's start with Taiwan Semiconductor. Obviously, Pelosi going over there was not well-received by China. I don't know how much it really matters or not. I, it's, I, I sort of think it's highly unlikely that China would do a forceful military action in Taiwan because it would essentially destroy the main asset of Taiwan, which is Taiwan Semiconductor. So I think it would be sort of a moot point. I think what they are doing, however, is poaching talent and trying to build their own semiconductor industry. Interestingly, they have now successfully produced a seven nanometer chip company called SMIC. This is important because they did it using the same technologies that Intel was trying to use, meaning they were not using EUV, they were using DUV, which is an older technology. Currently, China is not allowed to buy EUV machines, and it was understood that there was no way that they were going to be able to produce 7 nanometer. Now, producing 7 nanometer using DUV and presumably a similar process to what Intel was trying to do and was not successful in being able to do. So that's all food for thought. 
-hmm. comes to Intel perspective, still the same, similar to what I just said, Intel wasn't able to produce the seven nanometer process on DUV technology. So you can kind of see how we are falling behind China when it comes to semiconductor manufacturing. Taiwan Semiconductor is the leading fab in the world. They are the best at the leading edge. And as a result, their business is changing. In a way, they've been able to offload the risk associated with the typical chip cycle to the fabless semiconductor companies. So let me explain that because it relates to NVIDIA. So NVIDIA, who saw a huge boom in sales during the pandemic, has seen all of a sudden a lot of the demand dry up for their chips. And there's a lot of background reasons to it, some of which we've discussed here on this call. Most importantly being people are going back to work and they're playing less video games as a result. And then also cryptocurrency prices have fallen dramatically. Those cryptocurrency prices the higher they are, the more profitable it is for people to mine, mine the cryptocurrencies using GPUs. It is believed and understood that a lot of the gamers who bought GPUs were offsetting the costs of purchasing those GPUs by mining crypto when they weren't using their machines for other stuff. And then there's a handful of people that also went into small scale mining operations. All of that starts to dry up as the prices for these collapse. And most importantly, Ethereum, which was the most profitable cryptocurrency to mine using a GPU, is switching or intends to switch over to a proof of stake form rather than a proof of work form, which would eliminate the need for GPUs in the process. This has been pushed out many, many times. I believe it's currently slated for Q4 to make the switch, but I wouldn't be surprised if it gets pushed out yet again. Nonetheless, NVIDIA's demand for gaming cards has slid and they've announced that they're a reduction in their forward revenues. What also is the case that is somewhat, maybe not surprising, but an interesting dynamic as to how the semiconductor industry has changed is that because NVIDIA used to play Taiwan Semiconductor and Samsung off of each other in order to get the best pricing for their chip production. When NVIDIA went to TSMC most recently to get on the latest generation process, they were essentially last in line. And as a result, much like Intel, Taiwan Semiconductor had them pre-purchase some of this capacity. So NVIDIA is slated for a whole bunch of production capacity this year that they will no longer need, at least some portion of it they will no longer need. So no matter what the situation, Taiwan Semiconductor is going to get their money. And you're going to see it in a reduction in gross margins at NVIDIA. They might get creative with how they use their capacity. They may manufacture a bunch of chips and just hold them in inventory for longer. But the longer those chips stay in inventory, the more they're going to have to write down their value. Or the, the gross margin that we can expect that they'll be able to achieve is going to be much lower. So... Uh, I th think that leaves Micron as the last piece of the puzzle here of what we're discussing. So Micron's a memory manufacturer. They're in the U.S., but they have fabs all over 
similar to Intel, they're an IDM. They, interestingly, with memory, there used to be many players. It used to be a very, very competitive market. The memory market has consolidated in the past 10 years, in the past five years, pretty dramatically. My understanding is Micron's warned that they're seeing a major slowdown in memory purchases. They are definitely exposed to China. And if you connect the dots where China is intending to build its own semiconductor industry and prefer sourcing semiconductor parts and machinery from Chinese companies rather than foreign companies, now that they are producing on a seven nanometer process in China, one would guess that that demand might shift from Micron to the Chinese competitor. So I know that was a lot of information there, but I, you know, there's a lot of moving parts to this industry and it, it's a kind of a fascinating moment in time. So I'll, I'll pause there, Hunt, for some questions. Yeah. The, other, the, other, the other thing about the industry, and this is an insight I've had working with Michael and doing more reading is one of the ways you distinguish yourself in this industry is to combine software with the chips. That certainly has been the video secret and ADF secret. And remember that a lot of the chips now, like Apple designed its own chip, also probably made by TSMI. That was why NVIDIA was so interested in acquiring ARM, which is owned by SoftBank, now coming public, either coming public in the U.S. or coming public in the U.K. But SoftBank is in a position where they have to raise money. So we definitely will see an ARM IPO. That may be an opportunity. We'll certainly follow it carefully. But, I mean, Amazon designed its own chips. Uh, Google designed its own chips. Apple designed its own chips. And in order to get capacity at, at Taiwan Semiconductor, probably Samsung, and I assume what Intel hopes for, because they're going to not only design chips, but they're also going to uh, make chips for others. You're going to have to commit, you know, a year in advance to taking chips. Mike and I were talking this morning, probably what's going to happen is rather than make chips that, you know, that NVIDIA doesn't need or ADF doesn't need or Apple doesn't need or whatnot, they probably have a pay payment, a penalty payment that they pay so that the chips won't actually be made. It, but I think it's pretty clear that Taiwan Semiconductor's profitability will still be pretty good. We just have about four minutes left. Mike and partner Jason and I have come up with this shiny new thing, I guess you'd call it, that in addition to working on these large companies, which are well-established, that we will try to look at one company a week that is not as well-established that might have, you know, 10 stocks, half of the stocks ought to be ones that are pretty well-established that have free cash flow, that don't have debt and whatnot. And, you know, that's the Microsoft and the Amazons and the Apples and the Googles and so on and so forth. But we're going to try amongst ourselves a company each week to look at. As we mentioned, I guess we will mention the name of the company. The one we focused on last week was Shopify, which is a uh, kind of a competitor to Amazon, but doesn't have Amazon Web Services. So those have the cloud business and is way behind in terms of scale. And we'll speak to that in a second. The one that we have decided to pick for the coming week is Snowflake, which we've talked about before. It's a software company that, that you know, has most of the Fortune 500 on their 
customer list. And uh, so we'll have some commentary on that. And Michael finished out the half hour just with his, which I support initial take on Shopify, which is it's come down about 70 or 80%, but it's probably not cheap enough yet. So over to you, Mike. Yeah. So looking at Shopify, it, if you do go through the mostly recent results, you'll see that last year they had a very good June quarter. One of the things you have to peel out when you look at their net income, for example, is that they have a lot of positions in other companies and that enabled them to show much higher net income than other they otherwise would. So peeling that layer back, I came to this assumption that your income from operations, so your true net income, not including other stuff from the business, they're best case scenario is maybe a 10% net income margin. So using that number and then adding back expected stock-based compensation and expected amortization of amortization and depreciation, looking at year-ended numbers, I get to a free cash flow number of like $1.1 billion, which if you do it at a 20x free cash flow, that ends up with a per share price of something like eight or nine dollars. And it's currently trading at 40. So we're pretty far off. If you take the assumption that the company and the growth trajectory will resume at least along the trend line of previous prior to COVID e-commerce adoption, then you probably could be, get comfortable with a 3% free cash yield. But even that only gets you to about $15 share price. So I think, I think that maybe some of the reason that it got super overvalued last year is that the other income line made the business look better than it used to be or better than it actually is. And it's going to take some significant growth and maybe even additional product and offerings in order to see it be more profitable. All that is to say, I think it's a hold for now and we keep watching. Yeah, it does have a very, it does have no debt and it does have three or $4 billion of cash on hand. So it has the advantage. It doesn't have to raise money to, to grow. It isn't, you know, it isn't going to somehow belong to lenders. It is a Canadian company. I don't know what it got to, but I mean, it, it was selling for hundreds of dollars a share at the peak. One of the, it's one of the cases for it, or the case for it is it's not Amazon. It's to a certain extent, Amazon has to main, wants to maintain this thing as part of its antitrust effects. What it offers, and Mike can be more detailed on this. We may spend a little more time next week talking about Shopify in addition to taking up Snowflake again. But for someone marketing e-commerce, the advantage of it is Shopify comes in and helps you and it's your website and whatnot. So you're not as dependent on, on Amazon for your e-commerce and, and presumably Shopify gives you better deal on what part of the sales price they take for running the e-commerce site. Now, of course they haven't had warehouses. Now they may think that they have to do warehouses to compete with Amazon, that will really postpone free cash flow if, if they determine that they have to do that. And 
We're about out of time, but I have one or two minutes to Mike on just correct. He spent more time on Shopify has, and I may have misstated or left something important out. So Michael finished up with a couple of minutes, a couple more minutes on Shopify. So it's correct to think of Shopify as a frenemy of Amazon because Amazon sort of needs somebody else to be for providing a similar type of service, or at least to show that there's true competition in the market, which there is. Shopify really makes it easy for a seller to get online with their own website and sell. So does Amazon, except it's not within your control. You're within the, the bumpers or the guardrails of the Amazon pr- platform. And as a result, you're beholden to the Amazon free stru- fee structure. With your own website, your total margin may be higher because you're not kicking as much fees to Amazon, but you have to do all your own marketing. In the case of Amazon, you get your product gets placed. And if somebody searches for what you're selling, you're going to be in the results. Now you may have to pay some advertising fees to get to the top of the results, but you're going to be in the results. So. That's the difference. You got to do your own marketing yourself without, without Amazon, if you're going to use Shopify, the, the reality of e-commerce is a successful e-commerce strategy involves multi-channel. So your own Shopify channel, maybe, maybe through eBay, maybe through Amazon and maybe through some others. Yeah, no, I think we've run through the 30 minutes. Everyone stay healthy and be well, and we'll have uh, more on chip. And for the next bit of time, while we have the, you know, opportunity underway away from energy, I really will try to keep my part of the discussion to 10 minutes at the beginning. We will, we will, Mike and I promise that we will do one new company a week. A year from now, we'll have 50 companies. No repeating. We have to come up with 50. And thankfully, thankfully, we have backlog of about 20. So... When we pick Shopify, we pick Snowflake. We're not just grasping at straws. We actually have 20 or 20 or more candidates. I think this will be a very healthy thing for uh, all of us to do. And everyone, take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.